The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And so when you hear Connie, guy with Connie, stand up, run to the restroom. Well, Cormac and I, Jesse and I, we run into the restroom, and as we open the door to go to the restroom, we walk in on a seat. And we can't see anything because it's obvious a boy and his dad and the boy is getting disciplined and yelled at behind the closed stall. But it's awkward immediately. I think they've heard us come in. They're awkward because he's yelling at his son and we're awkward because we're in the middle of this moment. And here's what transpired. We walked in just in time to hear this dad leaning out his kid, his heart his work harsh. He said his words were harsh and cruel. And he said, you're being a little brat. You can't talk like that. You can't act like this in a restaurant. And then they hear us and we hear them. And it's silent. And Cormac goes, why is he so mad? And they're quiet, and I'm quiet, and I go, let's go back to our table. (laughs) You see, anger always seems justified to the one who's going off, but it often seems ridiculous to those who are watching. Anger often seems justified to those who are going off, but seems ridiculous to those of us watching. Here's what I mean. If I were to catch you in a moment of anger and we were to trace back what you were really angry about and you were to tell me what it was, you might feel embarrassed if you were that fired up over this. The same would be true if you saw me at any moment this week on vacation. We all struggle with anger because we all struggle to defend our little kingdoms our kingdoms of comfort and control. So really, anyone who imposes itself on our free time or our comfort or our kingdom or our control, we, we turn on. And the sad part is, is that most of us save up our anger for those who are closest to us, meaning we know that we're safe in our marriage or with our friends or with our kids or with our parents, and so we give them the worst of it. Some of us, it's this hot, quick anger. Some is slow and quiet and seething with resentment. Some is self-anger. But we all struggle. We demonstrate anger when people mess with our kingdom or our comfort. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. What marks foolish anger? First of all, it blows up quick. It says in 1429, whoever is patient has great understanding. The one who is quick-tempered displays folly. This is like the Hulk. Do you remember the Hulk? You're making me angry. I don't think you're going to like me when I'm angry. It's quick-tempered. It flashes quickly. What causes the short fuse in your life? Maybe it's work. Maybe it's how clean the house is. Maybe it's your lot at work. 
Maybe it's money. Maybe it's relationships. But the whole point of the Proverbs telling us that quick anger is dangerous is because you don't have time to slow down, to be thoughtful and godly and wise and restrained. You're not going to act right when you respond reactively. Reactively. So who causes that short fuse in your life? Maybe it's your spouse. And even the way they chew next to you on the couch makes you want to kill them. Maybe it's your family or your in-laws, your parents or your kids. Would those around you say you have a short temper? I dare you to ask them. I can tell you it's been a struggle of mine. Wasn't an angry kid, but certainly an angry dad. And I hate that. And I had to repent to my children on the way driving down here. So please know that I'm preaching in weakness. As somebody who's still being transformed has a long way to go. What causes our quick anger, our reactivity? A couple of years ago, I got a newish car. Some special people made it possible for that to happen. I got a newish car, and it's this beautiful navy blue Atlas Volkswagen, which is made right here in Chattanooga, and it's got leather interior. And it's beautiful. And I love my car. I love it because I haven't had a newish car. I love it because I'm normally by myself in my car. <laughs> I love it because I can play my music loud and I can drive how I like in my car. And just one day, I forgot to click, click, lock my car in the driveway. And the twins got into my car with Sharpies. I won't say I was going to murder them, but I was going to murder them. They drew all over the back seat and drew all over the rear windows. And when I stumbled upon them, I could actually feel the steam blowing out of my ears. And Aaron's trying to calm me down in the driveway so that my head doesn't pop all the way off. And she's like, it's okay, I'll use a magic eraser. It's all gonna come off. And I'm just marching back and forth like a sociopath, thinking, why do we have kids? I can't own anything nice. Because they had messed with my little kingdom. What is your little kingdom? Maybe it's how clean the house is. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's how you're perceived at work by your boss and others. Maybe it's with your spouse, how you like things done a certain way or not done a certain way at home. But what is your little kingdom? Your anger will lead you right to it. If you need to figure out what your anger, excuse me, what your idol is, ask yourself what gets me angry. It blows up quick, meaning reactive. We react wrongly. It blows up hot. 29-11, fools give full vent to their rage. But the wise bring calm in the end. Notice the clear opposite of this. 
If it blows up hot and it blows up fast, James 1, 19-21 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Slow to become angry. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We are called to show patience. Listen to this. 14.29 Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. What if our kids, think about your kids, what if our kids were to say to us, say about us, they weren't perfect, they certainly didn't know what they were doing all the time, Sure, they made mistakes. But my mom was patient with me. My dad was a patient man. Can you imagine the testimony that would be to our children about what God is like? And then when we tell them that our God is quick to listen, huge in compassion, slow to become angry, it would make sense. They would go, I know what that looks like. I've seen it before in my home. One of the reasons that we use anger is because it works. If you walk into a house and it doesn't look the way that it should look, you get loud and things start getting straightened up and put away and organized. And all it does just shows one more way that we were really interested in kingdom of self and not loving others. We were interested in our own little kingdom. A blogger, mom, and author set out that she was not going to yell at her children anymore. She said, when I had my no more yelling epiphany, I realized this. I don't yell in the presence of others because I want them to believe I'm a loving and patient mom. So she's at the park. She wants others to believe she's a loving and patient mom. The truth is, I already was that way. But rarely when I was alone, just always when I was in public with an audience to judge me. And she said, this is so backwards. I already had an audience. My four children, my boys are always watching me. So she's wisely saying that she can fight her anger because she realizes there's an audience around watching her to judge her. But what if she realized that that audience wasn't the people out there, those audience was the people that she was feeding and changing and bathing and loving every day. That's the audience that's watching her. See, our anger blows up hot. It's reactivity. It blows up fast. It's reactivity. It stirs up strife. 15 through 18 says this. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. That means an angry person will have problems everywhere they go. They will ignite conflict everywhere they go. They're stirring up angst in others. 
Eric Kidner is one of the best Old Testament commentators. He says this, quarrels depend on people far more than on subject matter. Quarrels depend on people far more than on subject matter. What that means, if I were to ask those that are in relationships or partnerships in this room, marriages, if they were to ask them, what in the world was your last fight about? and you were really to track it back and find it all the way back to where it began, you would be able to claim that there is a certain way to load a dishwasher, and then there are idiots who don't know how to do it. You would decide that there is a certain way of doing laundry, and there is everyone else who does it wrong. Meaning the content isn't why you fight. You know that. Anybody who's been in a relationship very long after a fight and you're awkward and you're trying to reconnect with each other, you're like, how did that even get started? Oh, I said that was teal and you said it was blue. It's not the content of our conversations that causes this. Quarrels depend on people far more than on subject matter. Angry people stir up conflict and strife. It's the opposite of Hebrews 10.24. It says, we're stirring one another to love and good deeds. Stirring one another to love and good deeds. Part of why this is, it's so hard to hear well when you're angry. It's hard to hear well when you're angry. That's why the, the wise person who's in the middle of a conflict and needs a few moments to calm their heart, go for a run, wrestle with God, says, hey, I hear you, but I feel myself reacting to this, and I would, can I have a few minutes so I can rightly respond to this? Because I feel myself getting angry. It, there's this sense of restraint. We want to hear well, and it's really hard to hear well when we're angry. And then the Bible links anger with arrogance. 21 through 24 says, The proud and arrogant person, person, mocker is his name, behaves with insolent fury. Why do you think that is? What does being angry have anything to do with being arrogant? Well, it's the arrogant person that walks around. And this was really humbling for me. The arrogant person walks around with the sense that I know who I am. I know who others are. I know how things should be ordered. I know what things should be like. I know how everyone else should live. And if you will all just listen to me, then I wouldn't be so angry all the time. You see how it happens? It's this one monolithic view of, of how life should work. And the angry person is always trying to get everyone else on board with that. So if you think you have an anger problem, you might really have an arrogance problem like me. Contrast that with a humble person. A humble person is walking around grateful. And when they hear of things that could frustrate others, they think, ah, oh, that could have been me. I've done that or something like it, or I will do it eventually. They're not keyed up all of the time because they have the sense that they are capable of any mistakes that they see out there. And so they're going to be less reactive and hot and stirring up of strife. The 
Do you want to work on your anger? Deal with Jesus about your heart and your humility. An angry person stirs up conflict and a hot person commits many sins. I mean, not only do they cause conflict, their hot blood causes them to sin. So you're causing difficulties for others. And it's increasing the sin in your own life. Anger also causes us to want vengeance, seeks payback. It says in 24, 28 through 29, do not testify against your neighbor without cause. Would you use your lips to mislead? Do not say, I'll do to them as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. You all know that one of my favorite movies and books is Count of Monte Cristo. It's a story of this man who is falsely thrown into prison reasonably for the rest of his life. And he was betrayed by his very best friend and he thinks he was betrayed by his fiance. And after he finally escapes the Chateau d'If, he finds the greatest treasure the world has ever seen. He is literally richer than any man has ever been. And he has a friend with him who's trying to convince him, let's go spend this money. Let's go have fun. His friend says, you're wealthier than any man I've ever heard of. Whatever your problems are, they're over. What do you want to buy? And he says, revenge. Okay, revenge. Who? Donglar, Viafort, Mercedes. We'll kill these people and then we'll spend the treasure. How is this a bad plan? And he says, no. Death is too good for them. They must suffer as I have suffered. They must see their worlds, all that they hold dear, ripped from them as I have had that ripped from me. I'll do to them what they have done to me. Do you see the revenge side of anger? The I wouldn't have felt this way, but they started this. You embarrassed me, now I'm going to embarrass you. You snubbed me, now I'm going to snub you. You hurt my feelings, and now I'm going to hurt you. What we're doing is acting like we're the king. We're the king. We're the judge. We know how things should have been. And we know how things turned out. And we know all of the dynamics involved. And we know all of everyone's motives. And we know what should happen. And we're willing to execute it. You start to hear the arrogance of revenge. And we all struggle with it. This sense that I am right to feel this way. Part of what we don't realize when we're so angry with others that we want to take revenge out on others is that ultimately the way that things were, God let those things happen. And that's not an easy pill to swallow, but it's real. God, even though He allows sin to take place, God let that happen. And He's still in control and God will use it for good. What people meant for evil, God will use for good. But God still used it. God still let it happen. 
And so when you think you're all torn up inside about the wrong that has been done you, the, the, the wounds that you have, the ugliness that you've experienced, what you're actually saying is, God, I should be king. I should get to decide what's right and what's wrong. God kindly looks at us because He knows we struggle with anger. You're not the king. Not the judge. Yes, He can feel and does compassion when His people are wronged. But He is the judge. He is the maker of all things. He is the king. And your real problem is with Him. Stone is... Sorry, it demonstrates anger brings out revenge in us, but it also weighs down others in ourselves. 27.3 says, Stone is heavy and sand a burden, but a fool's provocation is heavier than both. It means that your anger is a burden others have to bear. You see the irony in that, right? You're treating others as if they're a burden, they're a hindrance, they're an annoyance, they're a distraction, and yet, you're being a burden to them. Karen used to say that when she was little and she was frustrated, she used to think in her head, what is the meanest thing that I can possibly say right now? And then she would say it. Next time you're shouting at your teenager or your spouse or your partner, your friend, are you upset that they aren't stewarding their life well before God? Are you upset that they're messing with your little kingdom? And some of you, you don't struggle with big, hot anger that blows up at others quickly. You don't struggle with seething resentment and quiet, passive aggressiveness. Some of you struggle with anger at yourself. How could you do this? Why would I do this again? How can I keep struggling with this? How can this still keep bothering me? How can this still, uh, how can this be something that I'm struggling with after all this time, after all of these events, after all this time, I'm still struggling with it? You're terrible. You think Jesus hung bloody on a cross so that you could keep torturing yourself with words like this? Jesus came to set us free. Jesus came that we would live life and life to the abundance. And what you're really saying, it feels spiritual. It feels gratifying to beat yourself up because it thinks, it, it, it connotes that you take your sin very seriously. But what it's actually saying is I don't take the blood of Christ very seriously at all. It got me some way. I've got to get myself the rest of the way there and I'm doing such a poor job. It feels like you're beating up on self, but really you are insulting the sufficiency of Christ in your life. Our God is slow to anger and abounding in love. Steadfast love. Stop beating yourself up. Run to Jesus.
to what does, if this is anger, it goes reactive, quick, hot, stirs up strife, breaks down community, is a burden to others. And what does wisdom look like? Well, it looks like self-control. 1632. Better a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control, the one who takes a city. Whoever is patient has great understanding. The Bible says that self-control is important. It's even why it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. My anger problem is that I don't like God's control, so I lose my control because I want to be in control. Our anger is a control problem. Oftentimes our anger is because we don't like the way God is running the world. God, why are you letting these people get away with this? We're angry, as we said earlier, because God is sovereign and we're not. We want to be sovereign over all things. But you don't get to choose how much you make, ultimately. You don't get to choose how your spouse treats you, ultimately. You don't get to choose how your kids behave, ultimately. How others treat you. What your lot in work life is. And the powerlessness of the fact that we are not the king of the universe fuels us with rage. So maturity is going when something is difficult or distracting or painful. God is for me and he is in control. And I may not like this. I may ask him to get me out of it. I may lament to him using words from scripture about how I don't get it. But I am not the king. And the king is for me. Even when I can't piece it together. The wisdom is neither saying, blowing up angrily, and neither is it stuffing down the anger inside, but it's coming to repent and say, and lament, and say, I'm not the king I sure would like to be, but I know that you're the king and I'll put my trust in you. So learning self-control is realizing that you have no control. I'm not the king. I'm not the king. And then the Bible points us to the gift of forgiveness. In 1911, it says this, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is his glory to overlook an offense. This is glory to overlook an offense. You see this in younger couples often. They think they're perfect. It's understandable. You have all the feels. And then you get into a deeper relationship and you realize, you know, there's a couple more things about this person that I really need to change for them. And so they start picking at each other. I just need to round off some edges on this person, and then they'll be who I thought they were previously. And so they start picking at each other. And it says here that it's a glory to overlook an offense. That's why when you see a mature couple in their 50s or 60s or 70s, they're not picking at each other. They have abandoned all hope to change the other one. <laughs> they said... This person has the Holy Spirit, and I can entrust that God will work on them. And every problem of theirs, I don't have to solve. 
It is your glory to overlook an offense. You don't have to sort out every single problem. Live a life of grace and forgiveness. Those that are wise have patience. The Bible's encouragement is to forgive those around you. You don't have to minimize it. Act like it was, oh, it's no big deal. But you don't have to punish them for it. You take on the attitude in a different circumstance, I could have done this. I was once meeting with a couple and the husband had cheated on the wife. She was so angry as she had every right to be. But she kept misspeaking. She's right to be angry. But she kept saying, I would have never done this to you. She said, in a thousand years, I would have never. I'm incapable of doing this to you. You hear how one is the judge, the other is the criminal. Even we are in our most wounded, we who are broken need to walk around with the realization that we could have done that or something like that, or we might do it yet. And so we draw near with grace. If you struggle with beating up on yourself, you don't need to forgive yourself. You don't need to forgive yourself. You need to bathe and bask in the forgiveness of God in Christ. See, Christ forgives his enemies. There's an Iranian woman in 2008, and she had had a man burn her face with acid on purpose. And in the laws there, what she is allowed to do back is to burn his face with acid on purpose. So the day came when she was allowed to execute vengeance upon him. She brings the container near him, and her face is literally just marred by the acid. And she looks at him, and she pours the acid onto the ground. This says, I forgive you. You see, when we hear those stories of forgiveness, it reminds us that grace and forgiveness is what changes the world, not anger. How are we supposed to battle with enemies who disagree with us as kindness and mercy and leave the rest of the Lord? The desire of the righteous ends only in good, but the hope of the wicked only in wrath. Listen to this, friends. As you grow in wisdom, you won't stop being angry. You'll just be angry at the right things and angry in the right way. When you grow in wisdom, you won't stop being angry. You'll be angry at the right things and in the right way. One of my friends said, use this as a litmus test. That means you're allowed to be angry alongside God. You're allowed to be angry at the things God are mad at. So when you are feeling yourself angry and you have stepped on a Lego and you are about ready to murder everyone in your home, you could say, wait, God isn't mad at Legos or at messy houses. And so the first question caught me. I'm not angry alongside God because God isn't mad at Legos. So the first thing is, is God mad at this? Now, there are things in this world that we can say for sure God is angry with. But the second question will say this, 
am I angry like God? Meaning, yes, we know that God is against this, but am I angry the way God would be angry, which is slow to anger, patient, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving His enemies, hoping that all might come to repentance? Am I angry alongside God at this? Is this something that God doesn't like? And do I have the restrained, gentle, patient, loving your enemy style? It's what our world needs to hear so badly today. Politics just screaming at each other. Nobody, none of us knows anybody who to believe. We're just certain that everyone on the other side is a moron. Instead, what if we were to be able to disagree if we see that there are things that God disagrees with, but we would be able to disagree like God would disagree, which is slowly and patiently, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiveness and gentleness, and learning to love your enemies. Am I angry alongside God? And am I angry like God would be angry, wise and appropriate and for the sake of others and loving your enemies? Paul Tripp said this, Whose kingdom does your anger serve? Your little kingdom? What makes you angry? Is God against this? Do you get angry about the right things? Friends, if you really want to deal with your anger, you'll have to turn to the cross. Paul Tripp said this too. So on that hill of death, the full anger of God and the full anger of people collided on the back of Christ. He carried the carnage of that collision so that we would never have to carry it again. You want to deal with your anger? Look at Jesus. There's a scene in the Passion of the Christ from years back. It's a retelling of the story of the Gospel of Mark. It's the story of Jesus' death. And when he tells this story, uh, there are things about it that are theologically true, but aren't explicitly true, meaning they didn't say those words in the Gospels. But it's true to the story of who Jesus is and theologically. And one of those scenes is where Jesus is being flogged. And it's this horrible scene almost have to look away. They're flogging Jesus. And at one point, it's so bad, and they've hurt Him so deeply. There's blood everywhere. And Jesus falls to the ground as if, I can't take any more. I cannot take any more wrath being poured out on me. And even the scene goes quiet as Jesus falls to the ground. And then Jesus in the scene slowly begins to stand up and lean back over to take the rest of the wrath. It's as if Jesus has said, I will not leave any, le any wrath left for my people. I am not going to stop here. I'm going to stand back up and exhaust the wrath of God on me so that it will never end up on you. Friends, if you want to deal with your anger, you look at Jesus you look at God, God who had every reason to be angry with us, but instead pours His anger out on His Son 
so that you would never get an ounce of it. That, immersing yourself in that reality, that will soften your heart. If God could forgive me, if God could put His anger on Jesus instead of putting it on me, who am I still angry with? And how do I need to let it go? Let's pray. Jesus, all of us need hearts that are transformed. Those of us that blow up hot and quick. Those of us who seethe quietly. Those of us who pour out our anger on ourselves. We all need to be transformed. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, transform us? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hearts that are transformed. Those of us that blow up hot and quick. Those of us who seethe quietly. Those of us who pour out our anger on ourselves, we all need to be transformed. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, transform us? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.